Welcome to Greenlight Pod. I'm your host, Chris Long. Joe Barksdale on today. So I'm excited about that. Joe Barksdale, an old teammate of mine, good football player, played at LSU, Oakland, St. Louis, uh, the Chargers, only retired a year or two ago. And uh, I'll do a late night mailbag afterwards. Excited to have Joe on. Uh, and yeah, he was a very good player. We battled a lot in practice, one-on-one pass rush, team period. Um, you know, iron sharpens iron, that whole thing. You know, there's always, you know, I played with a lot of guys. I, you know, I, I don't know if it was in the thousands, but sometimes it seems that way. Um, and there was a lot of turnover in St. Louis, but I'll always remember guys that I had individual battles with in practice. And I think there's a kinship there. Um, that goes far beyond football. And I do keep up with Joe from time to time. And he was a good football player. But what I'm most proud about uh, Joe um, is his ability and willingness to talk about his struggles with mental health outwardly, uh, very outwardly. Uh, And, you know, when I played with Joe, he was a guy who was the life of the party. Um, He was a guy who would crack jokes, keep things light. Uh, You know, sometimes he had a temper, but we all kind of, had tempers at times. We all got into some scuffles and fights and whatnot. And, you know, Joe wasn't anything out of the ordinary in that way. Um, But he had his good days and bad days, like all of us. I never would have expected that he would have been battling those issues. Um, So when I read it, obviously I was shocked, but I was also proud of him for having the, uh, the, the strength and the courage to come out and talk to somebody with a major... Uh, publication, newspaper like that, um, you know, it, it takes vulnerability and uh, and bravery. And so I think that whenever there's a player like that who comes out in a very alpha male, a very alpha male sport and speaks on that stuff authentically, um, it's valuable. So appreciate him for doing that. Uh, we're going to talk to him about that. We're going to talk to him about his musical career, his budding musical career. Um, I do remember in around 2013 when we were teammates and he picked up a guitar and, you know, it was one of those things you're like, uh, okay, cool hobby. Uh, we all want to be good at guitar. But uh, about seven years later, he has an album out already. He's got a single out uh, right now. And then uh, this fall, he's got an album out called Sincerely coming uh, in the fall. I don't have a date. I'll try to get it from him. But the music sounds good. I'm, I'm, uh, as, I, as I said, I'm proud of him on uh on, on a few counts uh, as a teammate. So uh, let's hear from Joe. Joining me now on the Green Light Pod, a former teammate turned rock star, dude. You're saved in my phone, rock star Joe Barksdale in all caps. Hey, you got to name it and claim it, baby. Name it. it and claim it. Dude, you see, I got my Jimi Hendrix shirt on you. I, you know, you can see me on the Zoom, but. Yeah, I noticed that. Barksdale, Jimi Hendrix. Joe Barksdale, Jimi Hendrix. I'm gonna take uh, Joe Barksdale. No, I'm just <laughs> actually no. I'm gonna take Joe Barksdale. Uh, okay, so for those of you listening, Joe Barksdale, longtime NFL tackle. We had a lot of battles in practice, one-on-one pass rush, that sort of thing. Uh, and was a really good player. Played for the Raiders, Rams, and Chargers. 
um, we we scooped him from from the Raiders and uh, and treated him to a couple really stressful years probably in St. Louis. It's funny. It actually got worse. <laughs> I went to the next team. <laughs> when it went to L.A., it got worse than, uh, than St. Louis. I was telling Brianna, like, I miss St. Louis so much. Like, it got did you, worse. Did you miss the place or did you miss, like, what did you miss? Because we weren't winning a lot. Y'all won more than I did in L.A. Or yeah, we did it. We won more than we did in LA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And every time yeah, we played each other afterward, you were on the winning team. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, you played okay. So right off the top, you played and 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 LSU stand out as well. So uh, I don't know if you're still watching those games a lot, but that was pretty fun this year. Yeah, I heard. I um, I I was able to catch a couple near the back end of the season, but I mean, you know how it is. Like, you don't want to get too excited. So you played. Uh, again, Oakland, St. Louis, uh, L.A., Chargers. And if there's one thing those teams have in common is really shitty facilities. Um, which team had the worst facilities? Give me the breakdown. That's hard, but I'm going to say the Chargers. I mean, yeah, I'm going to say the Chargers. I'm there, not going to. There's huh? radioactive waste next door in Earth City. I, oh, I forgot about that. But even with, I'll put it like this, even with the radioactive waste, where I was coming from and where I was going, that was the, the, the one in Earth City was the place to have the radioactive waste. Because everything else I think was cool. Like there was, I mean, things that I took for granted, like an area outside of the locker room to dry your shoes so the entire locker room doesn't smell like shit. Uh, full length fields, you know, didn't know I'd miss those. Yeah, like we didn't have a full length field when we when the Chargers moved to LA. Like, yeah, because it was like all the West Coast teams, and you know this from going to play them. Like even their game day operations, like the visitors' locker rooms, are like, yeah. Uh, like I love to play at the Coliseum. Like I'd love to go play the Rams and play at the Coliseum because it felt like I love the old stadiums. I loved Candlestick when we used to go there. Although I used to tell Meg, do not wear any Rams gear. It's not that type of place. Uh, but I love the field and the vibe. The locker room was always yeah. bad, though. Out on the West Coast, is all those California teams. Yeah, and I think what it was is, you know, I mean, those teams were so good back in the day. I think they think you're just going to get, you know, bought in on the mysticism, which is not the case. No, no, it's not. Now they've upgraded. But uh, I thought we had a pretty good setup in St. Louis, like you said. That Earth City was uh, – well, you know, we had a, a large um, whirlpool. Uh, we, had a, we had a sauna. We had a steam room. You know, nice full fields, as you mentioned. We had grass fields, which was good. Yeah, like, it was, I mean, it, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, I'm not trying to bash the team or anything, but at the same time. Well, it's not even, I feel good because it's not even, you know, it's, I, can bash, I can bash the facilities because nobody's using the facilities anymore. The, 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 the practice facilities were not great, and I loved, you know, my eight years in, in St. Louis. The practice facilities were not great solely for the fact that there was an immediate threat to my health up the hill at that garbage dump. Do you remember how it used to smell in camp? I remember. Like, yeah, I remember. You're right. Like, I mean, the way I saw it was it was a 50-50. We can either get cancer or we can get superpowers. So I was willing <laughs> to wait it out. You know? I mean, one of the two. Uh, and then and then uh, Oakland, I know, because I visited there, like truly from a football perspective, those facilities were not great. I remember visiting there. It felt like uh, offices from the, the show The Office. Like they were That's divided exactly- by thin styrofoam dividers. Yes. And it's like, wait, y'all do football up here? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Is this a, is this a you know, a, a, a printer factory? Is the Kinko's office or, I, you know, like, uh, and, now, and now LA, I would assume it was not great either. So I, I, 
You're I'll put it like this. The Rams, by far, everything included, was by far and away the best facilities I had ever been. I've been in in my career. And and that's and and so shout out to Earth City in that in that <laughs> from that standpoint. But I, I you know I, I can't forget the smell of burning trash. Um, yeah. So you've been out of the game what two years now, almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you miss? Do you miss anything? No. Yeah, that makes no. sense. I don't miss a lot. I miss game day. That's about it. I hate a game day. <laughs> I hate a game day because I used to always, you know. I mean, I feel like, you know, everyone gets butterflies and that kind of stuff. But, like, I used to get so nervous. I wouldn't eat before the game. By the time the game's over, you're not hungry afterward. Like, I, I mean, it's it – used to. oh, I used to hate game day. Don't get me wrong. Like, it was, you know, I guess part of it, too, is if you play for nothing, you know. Once again, the best teams I've been on were those Rams teams in Earth City. So, yeah, not like winning a bunch of the time either. Yeah, seven wins is is is, uh, and that was my ceiling as well before I got lucky and started hitting the lotto late. I mean, uh, but I, I also miss. Okay, if I'm being honest, I do miss things like the night before at the hotel if we have a decent schedule, watching college football with the guys, like you know, eating ice cream Saturday night, knowing I'm going to burn all that off on Sunday. I, I miss you know Saturday morning, you know, getting the college football bets in. You know, I, I miss the buzz around game day. I don't miss anything. I miss people coming into town, you know, my friends coming in to watch games, like that sort of thing. But, you know, when the music stops, it's really not that bad. I think a lot of people fear it if they're, they're, they're not – they don't feel like they have a foundation in their kind of identity. And if your identity is just football or you don't have an identity, you're going to struggle. And I've struggled, like I've had my moments, but I'm much happier now than I was a a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I mean, it could be argued I've been miserable my entire NFL career. It could be Uh, argued. But like, so for me, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I came into the NFL with a bad taste in my mouth and it just never left. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, coming out of college and it was like a real knock on me that I did not need football, you know. And I feel like for my first maybe two or three years, I was trying to prove to coaches that, like, no, I can be dependable. You know, I can be a good player and all that. But I think, I don't know, like, I, you know, I, I have to think. No bad habits, Joe. No bad habits. But at the same time, like, all the things that you just talked about, watching college football games, getting your bets in, you know, doing, like, I didn't do any of that. I didn't watch yeah. sports, you know. Um, did, I mean, you ever, I was, like, did you ever like football? Ah, that's a that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I I love competing. And I believe and I think because I love competing and I knew I could compete, you know, in football, but I think I was in love, I was always in love with competing. Like even with football, like it wasn't about if the team won or if the team lost, like, you know, did you see me put hands on that dude? Like he didn't make a play. The imposing your will part of it was great. I used to love seeing frustrated looks and, you know, defensive ends and whoever's faces when they knew they weren't, you know, it's the third quarter, you haven't made a play, you're not going to make a play. You just you know. punched him in the helmet again in your past set, you know, and you got away with it. None of us ever got flags. I've been yeah, be face mask from Joe, Joe Barksdale's vertical set um, many times. I, I don't know that I ever, I don't know that I ever like, you know, lo- loving football is, is an interesting way of putting it. Cause there are some guys, no doubt about it, who, you know, eat, sleep, breathe football, and they're just 
me like football. Like that's not, that's not me. It never was me. I loved game day and you play with me. I was intense. I loved that. I played my ass off, but, but I hated Monday through Saturday. So at a point when the payoff on Sunday got to the point where it wasn't perfect for me and you can call that whatever you want to call it. I just, there were things I liked more like my family included, you know, my autonomy, not being yelled at by 55 year old men that have never done it. Yeah. I mean, those at, at a certain point, you know, and I think to your, to your point, I love competing. So I, I can identify with that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with never loving, loving football. Like if you love individual period, if you love, you know, walkthroughs, if you love sitting in meetings for three hours, then you got it. You love football. You, you win the contest. I don't love football if that's the barometer. See, I can do, and that's the kind of stuff that I did love. Like I love the individuals. I love practice. Like even now with music, I love practice and I love getting better. Um, because I know you don't just show up and be, you know, the guy on Sunday or whatever, you know, on, on stage there or whatever. Um, but I think for me, my relationship with football, the reason I started playing football was actually like before football, I was going to be an engineer and it was my dream to be an electrical engineer and eventually, you know, start to work with uh, the interior design of different auto manufacturers. Like that's what I wanted to do. Really? Yep. And when I turned 14 or 15, I was invited to this residential engineering camp in University of Michigan. And the second day I got kicked out for roughhousing. Um, parents made me feel like shit. I mean, you know, you can imagine. Like, it was a pretty, pretty prestigious opportunity. Mm-hmm. After I got kicked out of that camp, I needed something to do over the summer. I wanted to get in shape, started playing football. And I will say, like, I mean, you can imagine if you start playing football at 15, 16, everybody else has been playing since they were five, six. It's a, it's a steep learning curve, but it was like when I started to pick it up, it was the first time in my life, in my life, that I felt like people wanted me around and they were happy to see me when I was like getting off the bus or coming around the corner, walking into practice. And I feel like I had, football became like self-validation for me because like I wasn't getting it at home. I mean, I had a shitty childhood. And the reason I really poured everything into football was so I could get out the house. I go as far away as I can and pretty much start my life over. Um, and I think around, around, along the way, the competitive edge just kicked in and it became about like, I mean, the reason I love competing is because I want people to feel as shitty as I do. Even if it's, even if it's just for a three hour period in the game. Like, if, you know, I want people to feel that hopelessness, that fucking, what's the point? Because I feel like that all the time. You have spoken at length about mental health, um, which I think is a, is a tremendous thing. I, I was, you know, I said I was proud of you. Uh, when you popped up on Spotify, I might have been more proud, but at the same time terrified when I read that article in 2018. I mean, like, seriously, you're laughing because you like to take the pressure off off people when when they talk, which is really cool and endearing. But when I read that article in 2018 in the L.A. Times, I believe it was, you know, I, I always knew, like a lot of us who play football, we got issues. I mean, we, you know, everybody has trauma on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had no idea that you were battling this stuff the way you were. Um, so what made you decide to come out and be public with it? Because when I started to come to terms with it, I think, you know, it's, it's human nature to look around and realize what you don't have. And in that time, I'm talking about like, there is no one that's ever come. I mean, he had a couple people, but like for the most part, I didn't have anyone that had been through what I had been through that was talking about it or any of that. 
And I thought, you know, man, that really sucks. You know, you lament that. And I'm in the back of my mind, another thought came like, and it would really suck if you didn't become that for someone else. You know, so yeah. that was the that was the big thing. I mean, you know me. <laughs> you know how I used to dress in St. Louis. I don't care what other people think about me. And um, the reality of the situation is I knew that if I was going to come out about it and like someone like me needed to come out about it because people couldn't just write it off on CTE or anything like that. You know, I got the brain scans. I didn't start playing until super late. But like, I mean, the reality of the situation is there's a lot that happens before you ever get on a football field, like molestation, death. You know, knowing that I'm not the only person that has been through that and I'm not the only one that's going to go through it. I'm like somebody's got to say something. I'm, I can't. I can't in good conscience just sit around and you know let these people who have no voice just continue to suffer in silence. So um, that was something that I was very passionate about. And I mean, yeah, that's something I've always been. That's something I will always be passionate about. Yeah, a couple things. First, um, I think it is extremely helpful for people to hear somebody talk about that. On a lot of levels, even if it was just somebody, you know, talking about it, I think it probably helps. But the fact that you're a professional football player, you're this alpha male, um, you know, you're macho guy, you know, punching the fuck out of defensive linemen illegally in the face mask every day, all intimidating, grunting with that with that scowl on your face. Like, you know, you're big, scary Joe, but you're being you're being uh, vulnerable, which is really cool. I mean, like and I think that adds an element of. This is great. We need more people in our sport in this alpha male sport to be vulnerable. Uh, and then, and then there's the issue of the CTE stuff you talked about, which mm-hmm. is, and I've always said this, I'm not a CTE denier. I'm not some like, I think football is undeniably bad for you, mm-hmm. but there's a number of people just like yourself who are self-aware enough to realize that they've been dealing with realities long before football. And you've been dealing with chronic depression most of your life. Yeah. I mean, when I was born, my parents wanted a girl and I'm going to just leave it at that. Like, right. And I was made aware of that fact the rest of my life. Like if I still, I don't, I don't really, I don't really have, I don't even have relationships with anybody from my family tree. Um, because first and foremost, I, I mean, I would consider myself an utter failure if my kids went through what I went through with me being their dad. And, I felt like that was the best decision to, you know, prevent that. I mean, like, what I'm curious about is, like, how long did you know you, you were dealing with, with something? And then, like, I know, okay, I have anxiety. It's nothing compared to what you've dealt with from what it sounds like. And, you know, there have been times in my life where I've tried to be like, oh, it's this thing in my life. It's that thing. If I just eliminate this thing, I'll feel better. Or I'll be less anxious or I'll, I won't have the same you know, negative thoughts or ruminations or whatever. Like if I just alter this, oh, if I, if I work out a little bit more, like those things can all help. But did you battle a while with realizing like, Hey, either I got to go all in on fixing this. I think, it, I think it was something that happened over time. Cause I remember like, I don't, I don't even remember the doctor's name, but there was a doctor that saw it in St. Louis and he said something about it. And that was really my first, time like taking antidepressants but I was only on them for like a couple weeks because one of the side effects of them I think it was it wasn't Zoloft it was some kind of SSRI but one of the side effects was you couldn't ejaculate I'm like I'm not living the rest of my life you know taking medication that's gonna stop me from doing yeah, that, that 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 that's a small um detail there that they they need to put 
in a little bit bigger writing on the bottle. Don't they need they? to put a lot of, I mean, what really sucks about all of that medication is one of the side effects is could increase suicidal tendencies. <laughs> what? Yeah, so how, do you, how do you properly find the drug that's right for you? And are you, you know, are you currently, do you take medicine or, you know, like, mm -hmm. I know that's got to be part of the, there's probably a whole host of things that, that you do to be in your routine. Like you probably do, do you uh, talk to a therapist on a, on a regular Twice. basis? Twice a week, Tuesday, Twice a week. Tuesdays and Fridays. I'm on Wellbutrin. I take uh, 400 milligrams a day. Um, and you know, the, I do, I, the bodybuilding, like the working out, physical exertion helps. I stretch at night, uh, meditate, you know, um, I make the music, you know, with my kids. Uh, you know, just having a root. I, I've developed a routine that I feel like works. Um, obviously, you know, different days, you know, I can change things around. It's not like things have to happen at a certain time. But I just notice, you know, I mean, like you notice or anybody can notice on the days you drink more water, you just feel a little better. Yeah. And I, it's the same thing with that. You know, the days that, it, you know, the more of that stuff I can do on a daily basis, you know, I feel a little better. But I mean, I, I also understand that this is probably, and then I think this is what really brought one of the reasons, I don't know, one of the reasons I came out about it was because I had to come to terms with the fact that this is probably going to be what it's going to be for the rest of my life. Like, you know, and I can either live with that and, you know, start to fight it or I can just keep on trying to ignore it and things will get worse. So. That's kind of what I'm talking about. Like the realization at some point that you can't half-ass this. You have to like okay. make changes to your life. So and I can when that was. So I had, and this is, for the longest time, I just kind of ignored it. And I told myself that everybody grew up like me and I was just being soft. Stop being soft, you know. You sound and, like an offensive line coach. <laughs> I, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Punch. You can fix your chronic depression. You just need to get your punch inside. Like the man. Yeah, you're right. Just hit, hit a dude in the chest and that'll make you happy. But uh, I would say, so when I was like eight, I had a really, really, really close friend. Her name was Janae. She was my god sister and uh she was um she was raped and beat to death in her bedroom of her house i found out through the news like my parents knew these people's families my grandparents knew these people's families and they felt the best way to tell me was to bring me home early from school and cut the new cut the five o'clock news on or whatever um and that really like that i mean and there were things that happened before that, but that was obviously like, you know, a really big traumatic moment for me. And it wasn't until 2016, my daughter, this is just when we had one kid, her, uh, her name's Kennedy, firstborn, and she was crying in the car. And this is one of the first times I really heard her cry at length, because most of the times it's just cute baby cry, especially during the season. Um, and she's like wailing in the car. I don't know if she was teething or what, and I had like this massive panic attack. And it wasn't until years later, like a year or two later, when I'm talking to my therapist that I realized the reason the panic attack came was because I felt like I did back when I was eight, like someone was getting raped, beat to death, and there was nothing I could do about it, you know? And that's when I realized like, you know, if that one thing that happened to me back when I was eight years old is affecting me, you know, this way now, what else has happened that I'm not acknowledging? You know? And that takes time. Yeah. And I mean, and it takes bravery, too, because I'm not going to sit here and say therapy is easy. Just like you were asking earlier how you figure out what medication works. I mean, that was a two year process because you're pretty much 
you start a new med. Let's just say you start whatever medication you start. And these are the same drugs that people sell on the street too, you know, so they're addictive and you're pretty much, you know, becoming dependent on something over a couple of weeks. And then you are seeing how you feel over that next couple of weeks to see how it works. And if it doesn't work, you got to detox. And so, you know, going through that process can be pretty intimidating. And I mean, it can beat you down too. I mean, I can't, or, cause you know, with detoxes sometimes come to withdrawals and those kind of things. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, I don't, I know that there's a way where uh, they can take brain scans and do blood work to kind of get a better idea of what should work best for you. But at the end of the day, you still throwing stuff at the wall trying to see if it sticks. And I mean, for one medication, it could take you three months to see if it works for you or not on top of another two or three weeks of withdrawals if it doesn't. You know. So you mentioned you mentioned this with the medication stuff, because this is one of the most terrifying things I would imagine is, yeah, you might know that even if you go through trial and error, find the right medication for you, you, you find one. The reality of knowing that, as you alluded to, this is permanent. This is something that I can live a, a good life, but I'm going to need this, the dependency on something. And like, you're very aware that, OK, I'm dependent now. So one, do you ever worry about something changing? And then, and then just the, just the prospect of, um, of not being your real self versus being a medicated version of yourself. Do you have to grapple with that? Or is this your real self and the medication unlocks the positive things that you, you couldn't have unlocked without it? I say it's somewhere in, it's somewhere in between. I would say this is, you know, I'm still trying to get closer to like a healthy me. Cause if you, I mean, I'm saying if this is like, now, there's no such thing as normal, but this is if this is what people would consider normal. And you start maybe like down here, maybe medication can bring you maybe like up to here. For some people, it can bring them, you know, up here, right there. It's a whole bunch of different scales. But for me, I look at it like uh, like if I had diabetes or something like that, you know, would I would I judge myself, you know, for having to you know do certain things when it comes to diabetes, or if I had some kind of cancer and I had to go to chemo or do some other kind of treatment would I judge myself for that and I just try to look at it the same way you know absolutely you know, absolutely when, when when that stuff came out how did your teammates because you're you're an active player when this is happening and that's I didn't I mean, talk to anybody about it you didn't talk to anybody about it so was no. it a shock to them when when all that stuff came out and how did how did people handle the news do you think that people changed their perception of you a bunch of them called my wife or a bunch of them talk to their wives or girlfriends and who called my wife. I think people were shocked just like you were. Like, cause I mean, I mean, I've read the article and I even listened to the interviews that I've done around the time that that article came out. And like, people are like, whoa, who's this guy? Has he been lying to us this whole, you know, just people couldn't believe it. Like, like you said, like whenever rough things or awkward moments happen, like I'll be quick to crack a joke or, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, but that's a defense mechanism. But at the same time, I think more than anything, um, it definitely brought awareness to my teammates because, and I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not naming any names, but there have been three or four that have approached me personally that have started since, have started going to therapy and like really taking it seriously and have noticed positive changes in their lives. And um, I think it was a, it was a learning experience for everybody, you know, because out of all the people on the team that you would think were, you know, was going through what I was going through, I was not in the top, you know, 20, 30 in consideration of that. Yeah. So I think it really opened people's eyes to that, too. The whole like, oh, you never know what anyone's going through, that kind of thing. Right. And it's the same story all the time. When I read 
about uh, your detailing that that kind of process. Um, were there any other players in particular that were were very helpful? Joey helped a lot. Joey helped a lot. I mean, Joey, me and Joey were pretty much me and you from uh, from the Rams. So we yeah, we go we run into each other and then shoot the shit in the locker room for yeah. So like outside of football, he helped a lot. Um, but I didn't really. I don't know. Like even when I was at work, I didn't really talk about it much because I felt like. I mean, I, I didn't do it for other football players. I did it for people outside of the building. So it's not like I was ever looking to talk to anybody in the building about it in the first place. And if I'm going to be 100% honest with you, I'll just say it. Like, my one of the side effects of, like, my mental condition is that I feel like everybody hates me anyway. So, mm-hmm. like, nothing – in my mind, nothing changed. Like, you know. Well, I don't hate you. Whatever, you. whatever you're trying to do to make people hate you, it's not working, asshole. Okay. Um, <laughs> What about coaches? I mean, like, there's a difference between players and coaches because I think of players as being very understanding. You know, one thing, you know, one part of it is – talk to a coach about it. Huh? Coach, the coach never t- – no coach ever talked to me about it. Because they don't know how to. I think it's a generational right. thing. And then also, like, coaches are the kings of, like, we can't show any weakness. I don't care what the reason is because, I mean, Jeff Fisher would have talked to me about it. Jeff Fisher yeah. did talk Jeff to me. Jeff Fisher's rare. Jeff Fisher's rare, for sure. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff Fisher has a real investment in the in the in the personal lives of the, the players on his team. You know, that's yeah. why when people say things about Jeff Fisher, you know, nobody's a perfect coach. I mean, there's been hundreds and hundreds of coaches, and you know, this is a guy who won hundreds of games and is north of 500 and played in a Super Bowl was a Mike Jones tackle away from being a Super Bowl champion. Mike Jones, who? Mike Jones. Um, but like. What nobody who's out there with a blue check writing about Jeff Fisher and getting the seven and nine jokes off about who, by the way, that could be unfounded. He's had high highs football wise. The the personal stuff, they just have no idea. They don't know the difference between coaches that have an investment in their players and and, and the ones that don't. So and I couldn't imagine that they were very good at addressing you. And I'm not shitting on coaches. Maybe they're afraid to talk about it. That's just not the way they were raised. Maybe I mean the reality situation is after that article came out, like no one said anything to me about it, really. Um, that's not good. I, I like, and you can say what you, you can say what you want that you don't expect coaches to to talk to you. But like, if I was a coach and my players going through that, I would think unless I'm petrified of having the conversation or I look at it as a weakness, which it's not. It's actually a strength. I know that's like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. I mean, to put your your innermost demons out there in the L.A. Times. What do you think the NFL in general can do better uh, in in helping players with uh, with issues like yours? And are they doing anything good that you want to highlight? I'll start with the second answer. No. <laughs> I mean, reality situation. You played in the league. Like, if it's not going to help the owners. It ain't happening. Right. You know, it ain't happening. Um, so what So what could they do? Because there's always going to be another draft. What could they do? Bring therapists in. You know what? The same amount of time that we spend talking about domestic violence and everything. like Which was just a liability cover your ass meeting, by the way. Exactly. exactly. If, I, if you have to... if 
you are in an NFL locker room and you need an hour presentation, a fucking slideshow, a PowerPoint presentation on why it's bad to hit women or to hit your wife, then you should probably just get the fuck out of the league. Like, if you really think that hour that they do at the beginning, but you know of the league is not gonna, what the league is not going to say is they want those players. Ray Rice was only suspended for two weeks. They don't care. Tape. Yeah, they don't. Those. No, I'm saying those are the kind of people they want. Like they want you at any given moment. It's time to be. You know, hey, okay, your wife. Cool. Like they want super violent, super aggressive, whatever, whatever. So I think I think the the problems come when it happens off the field. But like we're not. I mean, let's just not sit here and act like you know there wasn't a bombing scandal or anything that happened in the league. Like coaches want. Hey, hey, now Greg Williams is a good guy. Greg Williams, what? Here's the deal. I don't know what Greg Williams was doing on his defense and what he wasn't doing on his defense. But what I I ne- do- like, if we're being serious, I never like, I never caught a, a single whiff of that. Yeah, and Me we did. never, we never like. Listen, I think it's hard enough to, tr- if you tried to hurt somebody, it's really hard to do that on on a football field, like within the whistles. I mean, for you to do it egregiously between the whistles, everybody's gonna see it. You know, an Indomitian Sioux stop or twisting somebody's knee after the play. I think some people think when they watch Sean Taylor or Ray Lewis or some of these like notoriously hard-hitting players that it's just a decision. You're just going to decide to nearly decapitate somebody. You have to be a tremendous athlete. You have to be accurate. You have to have timing. And you have to be in the right place to make that play. So, And I say make the play, like do what was being alleged was being done, which was an entire bounty scandal and me playing for Greg Williams. I never had any, um, any, I never made any money. In fact, the Rams, uh, paid me handsomely. So why would I need, why would I need well, I'm trying to get this extra couple hundred or a thousand dollars? Like, like really, like you're talking about guys making millions of dollars. You think they're going to yeah. sit in the meeting room with regularity and, 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 and put, uh, what? Hey, I got, I got a Chris if the quarterback doesn't come back in the game. All right, coach. Oh, come, come on, man. Come on. What can the what can the NFL do to help with that? Yeah, well, I mean, like, what, what can they do? You said bring therapists therapist in, Joe, but I, playing devil's advocate, you bring a therapist in. What's every player's first uh, first? Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about bring a therapist in to talk to players, like not not individually. Like, yeah. hey, this, like I'm saying, the same thing with the domestic violence stuff with people who. I, Oh, those meetings were so frustrating. You sit through like an hour and a half, two hour meeting, and they wouldn't even mention domestic violence once. We'd just be gearing up for a conversation that never happened. It was like, it's it's domestic violence edging. Right well, and, then, and then at the end, they're like, anybody have anything to say? Oh. No. Like, <laughs> just, you know, and, and my whole thing is, if, I guess the NFL can't do everything because they don't have these kids until they get in the league. So, you know, it's a developmental thing. How do you like a lot of people's problems have already man, began to manif- manifest by the time they get to league, whether, you, you know, you're 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 engaging in a really uh, destructive behavior like that, which is unacceptable or uh, or you've got some other sort of issue. I think the informative meetings are more like, hey, watch out for these type of scammers. You know, hey, you want a security consultant to come in and look at your house like that's great. But I think the NFL in general and domestic violence to me is part of a mental health thing because you don't hurt people unless you're hurt. Like, that's just my opinion. And not everybody gets hurt, hurts people. But but yeah, if you brought therapists in, everybody's like, well, I don't really want to share anything. 
Yeah, so I'm saying you just have a therapist. I want to go home. But you have a therapist come in. You're right. I mean, the reality situation is the way that the the way that schedules and all that are set up already. Maybe no one's going to listen. Maybe one person listens. I mean, the reality, you know. One person listens, to your point. You, you, you said something, and then you talked to four different people that, that said that it spurred, uh, you know, them going to seek help. So mm-hmm. I think it was really cool. And I think at the very least, if the NFL can't do it, then players. Not. I mean, we're talking about the same NFL that lost a collusion lawsuit against Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed and whoever else. Like, Come on, like I'm not trying to bash the league or anything like that, but the league does not give a fuck. And I, if you don't, if you don't know that, you're ignorant. Right. Like the situation, it's just like the, I mean, it's just like the military. Why would I care about you when there's somebody else coming in to replace you next year? Like you're 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 maximally um, expendable. And I think when you look at leagues, the less players they have, the greater the asset the players are. The more player friendly the more they do things the right way. Leagues, I think. Let's not even get started on NFL PA. Yeah, well, I mean, that whole thing has been uh, quite the bad joke this offseason. So, yeah, I mean, I I think they could do better. uh, But I think what what you've done has been invaluable. Like I said, I was proud of you. Um, I was proud of you when I I heard your music on Spotify. But I I was even more proud in a, a serious moment here. Uh, when when I read that article, because it does take a lot of balls, put yourself out there like that, and you've undoubtedly helped a lot of people. Now, you, you started doing music, and that's what you're doing now. I mean, you you, you started doing music in 2013. I read, and 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 I remember that that little phase that was not a phase. It turned out to be like that's your career trajectory. I was like, okay, Joe likes the guitar. I was like, many people have liked the guitar in history, but never stuck with it or, or, you know, it's challenging. I've tried to learn once and I was like, it, I lasted like two days and you got to have, you know, that resolve and that drive. Like, where did that come from? Uh, and when did you realize that guitar was something that could be, you might be more of a guitarist than a football player. Do you, do you consider yourself a, a musician first and football is something you did? Yeah, for sure. Like, and I think, you know, um, in the end, it'll be like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I mean, how many people who know him now know he used to be a wrestler, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I would say just, it came natural. Um, and learning guitar went from, you know, being something that I was doing to try to process a death into another mouth, you know? I, was, you, I mean, you can say things, I can say things with a guitar that maybe I can't get across in words, you know? Um, as well as just, you know, a method of self-expression and so forth. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I loved it. It was, I felt about it the way that I was supposed to feel about football. And, uh, that's why I stayed with it. But I mean, I mean, you can imagine like finding out your dad died and then the next call is from a coach. Like you're going to be able to make a practice today, you know, like, and that was around the time when I really started to like, you know, reevaluate things in my life. And I don't know, like. The guitar was there for me and it was what I needed. And, you know, hopefully one day, you know, um, you know, I can share that with the world. And you already have started sharing it with the world. You have um, one album out technically, right? Um, Yeah, I took the first one down. You took the first one down? What does that mean? You can't find it unless you go to my website. But the reason I took it down was because I, I wasn't in love with the way that it sounded. I mean, you know how it is. Like, I didn't want that to be the first impression people got on my music. Mm-hmm. The first impression is that Electric Soul EP. Yeah, okay, okay, got it. 
But and then like, I just dropped a single. There's a music video coming out next week for that single. The Black single. Magic single? Yeah. I'm dropping three albums and like three or four singles and I think two or three music videos this year. Trying to build a catalog. What's, um, what's the most frustrating thing about learning to be a musician? A professional musician or just a musician in general? Yeah, learning. I mean, like the basic stuff. What did you struggle with the most? The theory, like picking up the theory, you know. Um, I would relate it to, you know, how like everyone wants to learn karate. But before you're actually, you know, back in the 90s and the TV shows, before people started kicking and punching, there was the meditation and the stretching and, you know, all the things that went into, you know, having good technique for what you're trying to do. I feel like it's the same with music. I'm sure just like it is with football. Like you were talking about, you hate individual. Like that's pretty much what learning guitar is. It's well, I hate individual after the age of 30 because I've done my individual for many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's all the basics and nobody thinks about getting into guitar or music. Well, I maybe I don't want to speak for you, but like, and thinks about, hey, I can't wait to practice. Like, yeah, no, you're right. I was like, oh, I can't wait to pick this up and be frustrated every night. And, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, there's a curve, but I think just like with anything else, um, kind of like, so I do bodybuilding now too. And I would say it's kind of like- I see. Hmm? I see. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say it's kind of like dieting. Like when you first starting, I mean, you know, like when you first starting, you lifting, you eating, you're not going to see anything the first week. Yeah. But eventually the results will start to come and yeah, it'll still be a pain in the ass, but you know what's going to come on the other end of it. It helps with the delay gratification and all that stuff too. So. Right. I think it works together. So fishing, you met, and he helped you get into guitar. Yeah, it, it like it was a, it was. A, I didn't realize how private of a meeting it was until after the fact. But like this was, we were coming back from Seattle. We were getting on the buses to go to the uh, to go back to the facility, and you know I always was on the bus that he was on. I'm getting on the bus. He was like, "Hey, can I talk to you tomorrow after the exit meetings?" Sure, you know, I was ready to go home, but I'm like, sure, you know, because I was driving anyway. Um, and the next day, you know, after everything was done, I mean, he sat down and was like, you know, I don't want you to think that, you know, if nobody else in the building, I mean, you know, no one else in the building understood how hard these last eight, nine weeks have been for you. I get it. And, you know, being concerned about, you know, your mental health as well as just, you know, you as a person, I think that you should really find something to do this off season. And I'm like, you know, I was you know, was this my second, third year in the league? I'm oh yeah, coach, don't even worry about it. I'm gonna, you know, do a bunch of technique work. I'm gonna come back even better. He was like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about sports. I'm talking about something outside of sports. I'm like, well, you know, I play video games all the time. And he's like, no, you need something that's gonna actually occupy, you know, part of your brain. And I'm like, well, you, I'm not going back to school. And he's like, well, how about an instrument? I know you listen to music all the time, yada, yada, yada. Uh, my son loves guitar. Maybe you should try guitar. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> And that's so, how it started. That's how I started. I so Jeff Fisher, when you become big time, will Jeff Fisher have a backstage pass? Hell yeah. I mean, there's going to be people that have done less, you know, less in my music career that have backstage passes. So, yeah. yeah. I'm saying, yeah, Fish, maybe Fish will make like a, a music video. You know, oh, I didn't say all that. But uh, no. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just imagining maybe. Uh, Maybe Fish can be like one of the characters in one of your music videos, like a guy whose girl left him. And oh, yeah. Just like fit. He's like riding his, his Corvette around town all sad with his hair blown in the wind. and Or he could be like uh, bass fishing all lonely. And like, oh, at, at the end, he finds a new thing because he, he realized that 
what he needed wasn't what he had all along. It's it. He needs to not dwell on the past and move. See, I can do this stuff for you. I can write songs. I can direct music videos. You could. You're right. I mean, so, the way I see it is like, if I can be a professional football player, anybody can do anything. Yeah. So, you know, Brianna, your wife, um, who you, you always talk about as being a big uh, support system for you. You've been mm -hmm. very outward about that. You know, when it comes to the mental health stuff, when it comes to the music, how hard is it to sell to your wife that, hey, listen, I made a bunch of money playing football. We're probably good, but um, I got to go practice guitar for, you know, a couple hours a night. And it's not bringing in, you know, it's not paying the bills yet. Like, it's an art. Is, is she supportive of it because she knows you need it and she just knows you love it? Um, it's not necessarily like a nine to five where you're paying right. the bills with it yet. Right. I think, um, I mean, I would say like we, so as far as like the money side of things go, like we hit financial independence, I think back in like the end of 15, beginning of 16. So she was technically trying to get me to retire ever since that suicide attempt in 16. Right. Um, as far as the music was concerned, <laughs> and she said this like verbatim, cause she was around before I started playing football. And she's like, you know, as far as football is concerned, back in high school, you could have asked me, you could have asked her. We didn't think I was going to the league. This was just, you know, a way to get into college, get a good degree, moving on. But um, she's like, yeah, uh, after being around and, you know, seeing how you started with football and where it ended up, I have way more faith in you. <laughs> you like, you know, you just started in guitar and where that can end up. Mm -hmm. She was actually the reason that I got, that I started taking vocal lessons. And that was one of the things she asked me. She's like, obviously, you know, before I ask you this is, you know, it's not like we need the money, but are you, are you trying to like, how big are you trying to get with this music thing? And I told her and she's like, well, you need to start singing. Cause I just wanted to be a guitar player, you know, in the background. And she's like, there's, you know, what you're looking for. That's, that's not in just playing. You need to be able to sing too. So if anything, she's, I mean, she's been the catalyst as far as support. Yeah. She's been super supportive, but just from a, not from a, you need this and not from a, you know, we don't need this just from a, you're really good and you don't need to be at home playing in the living room. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think that's a big part of, you know, staying busy, finding a passion and you, you, yeah. You found one before you even retired. So um, kudos to uh, to you and for to Brianna for you know nurturing that. When you were in St. Louis, um, how did you how did you hone your craft? Like when you were still playing, what would you do? Would you go play like joints different places? Would you play with people? I mean, like how did you like when you were in St. Louis? How did you do it? And then when you got to uh, to L.A., like did you go looking out? for studios or, or people to play with? Like, how does that work? Cause you got to practice with people. You can't sit in the living room, right? Mm -hmm. I would say with St. Louis, because I was so new to the guitar, I pretty much, I learned how to play the blues in St. Louis. I mean, you know, it's a really big blues city. There's a guy down there named Jason Cooper. He's actually still there. Fantastic blues guitar player. Um, and he was kind of, you know, the cat, he was, he was a big part of like my blues playing. He was a big part of introducing me to that kind of stuff. You know, everyone spends their off days and, you know, the nights before off days differently. And for me, um, I was using it to sharpen my tools, whether that would be playing downtown somewhere, you know, at an open jam or, you know, going to different concerts, networking or, uh, you know, just practicing. I, so I pretty much, you know, put the cleats down and pick the guitar up and vice versa, you know. Um, and it got to the point in St. Louis where I was, I mean, I had guitars the night before, nights before games, you know, because what else was I going to do? Right. And then when I got out to L.A. or San Diego, um, 
I actually linked up with another fantastic guitar teacher named Mark Shapiro. Um, that's when I got deeper into theory, started learning the jazz and those kind of things. And um, I think the next year, the next year after I got there, we uh, I had a 16 week residency at this place called Humphreys. That was the worst decision of my life. <laughs> why, why did it, why did it suck? Just because I mean, it's, it's don't get me wrong. It's one thing to show up to a jam session with just a guitar to play for a couple hours and go home. But when it's your event, you're there before everybody else. You bring in the guitar, the amp, the pedal boards, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. You're on stage the entire time. And I just think, you know, by the end of the season, I mean, you know, how you feel at the end of the season. I feel like getting on that stage. Yeah, not just like standing or sitting. Like, yeah. I remember as I got older in my career, like, I don't want to be sitting. Like, I don't want to go out to dinner and sit. My back's going to start hurting. I don't want to stand. I don't want to, you're hunched over a guitar. Like, it's, you're really doing things that make it harder on you as a player. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> for the, 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 definitely on the back end of those jam sessions, I played them sitting down because I'm like, all right, I don't, you know, I'm going to pass out up here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. I want to give you a chance to plug uh, the new album coming out in the fall. Sincerely is uh, <laughs> the name of the album. Oh, sincerely. Um, it'll be, you know, a continuation in the vein of my first album. Pretty much in terms of my music, I look at it, uh, I look at it not like, you know, what a musician would do, but I'm, I look at my music, like everything I release is like world building, kind of like George Lucas with the Star Wars series. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, pretty much moving forward, you know, there's the Sincerely, which would be like, you know, the things that you think of when you think of like indie rock or any kind of guitar driven music album, you know, high fidelity guitars, background vocals, you know, those kind of things, uh, kind of a pristine, you know, what you think of when you think of studio. Then there will be a line of what I call R and beats, <laughs> rhythm and beats, which is pretty much because uh, my second instrument is actually like the drum machine. Right. So it's pretty much just a bunch of beats. And then there's going to be, uh, I call it like the journal entry series, but there'll be more like mixtapes, uh, pretty much combining like, um, you know, music from different influences that I've had. Like this next one coming up in December will be Teddy Pendergrass focused. So there'll be like two Teddy Pendergrass covers, four originals. There'll be some 808s on there, kind of a merger of the two, mm -hmm. of the beats and the studio stuff. So, Well, what's the date? Do you have a date yet or do you know? Um, for Sincerely? Yeah. Let me go ask my manager. Hold on. <laughs> hey, babe, do you have a date for Sincerely? She said, she said September. We haven't picked a date yet. If I have anything to do with it, it'll be one of those first two weeks. Have you considered how um, this situation will alter uh, how you want to release this thing? Yeah, I was saying no. I think if anything, because um, there was pretty much a plan in place for this year. So we're pretty much just rolling with the plan. And I just think um, if anything has been emphasized to me during this pandemic, it's that this is a great opportunity to make more music. That's so what I, I'm like. There's got to be some good art coming out of this thing. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're a focused musician, but I mean, it's the reality of the situation. Just like if we were both still playing, sure, we would be working out right now. Yeah. There's a lot of people that would not. You yeah. Know? But I just think I figure like something this of this magnitude that makes you reflect on humanity and society and can we pass the test and your own mortality because we've all thought about getting sick or whatever. And the isolation could breed more creative thought or, you know, more um, profound feelings that, that will make you make good art. Whereas if you're a football player, it's just all it is is a litmus test to see if you give a fuck on your own. 
But I would argue, I would argue it's the same with music. It's to see yeah. if you give because there are so many, there's so many artists. I'm sure you probably know some. So many people in general that'll sit around and bitch and complain about how hard everything is. Mm-hmm. And they continue to sit around and complain about it. And it's like, well, are you gonna do anything? We're just gonna talk about how hard it is for the next, I don't know how many years. You know, right. I've never, you know, I'm I hate complaining. So well, I know I know what the fuck I'm doing as a podcaster. I'm just putting out new podcasts every day. I'm not getting I'm not complaining. Why not? Taking my art to the next level. I don't care if anybody's listening. Why not? Because that's the problem. Nobody's even listening to this podcast, Joe. I'm just doing it because I love the art form. Nobody's listening today. But honestly, like, I'm fucking around. But I, I did when I, when I, and you almost believed me, which is bad because you're like, man, this operation's kind of. <laughs> no, no. What I was thinking, honestly, what I was thinking was, well, he, I don't know how many people you were, you know, but I just knew, like, as it continues, it's going to grow. Like, why wouldn't it? Because I'm an artist, bro. I'm I'm taking this I'm taking this time in social isolation, and I'm gonna elevate my game. Okay. So, are you writing music like with a plan for? A, are you already thinking, hey, my next album should be 2021, or like? I've got, you, I've, got music, I've got I've got songs written right now, like planned out to 2022. So, if something was to happen to me, there'd be music coming out until 2022. Oh, here we go. You just stay home, okay? That's all you got to do. All right, so so on stage, when, whenever you really hit it big, and by the way, I got to say, when was when I saw my friend on Spotify and I could hear his music, <laughs> it was one of the proudest moments of my life as a teammate. I was just like, this is amazing. I mean, my buddy's on Spotify, and it sounds good. It's real music. And, and also, you have good taste. So, like... I, I like the way you're making music. You've made it to Spotify. Like, it's a real, it's funny. You could watch your friend win a Super Bowl, be on SportsCenter, all this stuff. But when I see my buddy doing something outside football, it's like I had Myron Roll on yesterday, um, who's, who's training to be a neurologist. That blows me away way more. And he's on, he's on the COVID floor at Mass General. I'm like, this guy, fuck football. This is, this is impressive. I mean, when people succeed outside of ball, it's crazy. So kudos to you. And when you hit it big, will you be uh, more of like a flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, where you're jumping around, showing off your vertical, you're 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 sliding across the stage, you take your shirt off. Like, what's your stage persona gonna be? Are you gonna be Chris Stapleton, where you just stand in the middle of the stage with the microphone and play kick-ass music? Which one's it gonna be? Ah, do I have to just pick between those two? I know you. I mean, you can pick anywhere on the spectrum. I say it'd be a hybrid. I would say if I could just put musicians and people together like it would be like if teddy prendergrass could play like Jimi hendrix nice. that's how i perform you know because the reality of the situation is i mean and correct me if i'm wrong there's a lot of high-pitched voices in music these days there's not really and i have four vocal octave ranges actually but i choose four. to four flex on them <laughs> how many do i have you think if i had to guess yeah uh what's the highest you can go i'm not gonna do it on this podcast dude. <laughs> I don't think I can go very high, dude. Okay. But you do talk in, okay, so I'm thinking. If I get animated, the voice can get a little high. Yeah, so one and a half, two? One and a half or two, okay, that's a start. I mean, I think I can at least do two albums off that. It's not about, I mean, this is like anything else. It's not about, you know, the potential you have, it's what you do with it. Hey, you know, some people will say more is not more when it comes to vocal octave octave ranges. It's true. Yeah, I've heard people say that. Um, that's true. There were, <laughs> really, is it? Because there, I mean, you'll get people who try to show off all four octave ranges in one song, and it's like, whoa. No, we're talking about you starting like, da, 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 you know, continuing to go all that. Da, 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 
you know, well, like, I, I got I, I, like, I don't know what it is. Is it scarier to go out there and get beaten pass rush? Yes. Or, 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 yes. To, or to fuck up a chord at a show. You can beat in pass rush. You can play that shit up so quickly with a chord. Because all you got to do is just do it twice. And now it sounds like you're being like jazzy and edgy. You know? You're you like, can, oh, that guy, yeah. Look yeah, at that you guy. can beat pass rush. Somebody's getting smacked. Now you got to help the quarterback up. Oh, you know. Well, uh, it's okay. way the worst to get beat in pass rush. That's a surprising answer to me because I would think like I'd feel way more vulnerable putting my art out there than I would football like if if i write something like i've had to write a little bit if somebody's like this is trash i don't like your writing style like or you know if somebody don't like my podcast i probably take that more personal than somebody being like where were you on sunday you only had one tackle like why artist why because i mean i would argue there are people like even right now i'm sure that they're out of the Thousands of people that are listening. There's one person that's tuned in. Like, what the fuck is this bullshit? Yeah, no shit. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm I saying guess. that to say, like, everything ain't for everybody. You know what I'm saying? And but if if by and large people don't like it, and that's okay, well now we're talking. Hey, listen, if, a, if an artist, they, we know there's artists who have put out garbage albums. Like, even good artists or, or singles that that didn't do well or play bad shows. Like, that's not something that it's for some people. It's 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 not for other people. Like. I feel like if you put your art out there, you're, you're even more vulnerable than you are on the field. And I guess my rebuttal to that would be, you are 100% right, first and foremost, you, yes. Like it's, it's one, you. you as opposed to 53 of you, for sure. But my argument to that would be, or I guess, I guess the thing that gave me the courage or whatever, like, you know, I don't just do stuff just to do it. Like I right. think about everything before I do it. Right. I know it's good. So even I know that there will be a person every now and then that'll come along and say it's not, and that's fine. I mean, there's still billions of people on the planet, and I plan on being global. So, and I know all however many billion people are not gonna like my music, but I do know a majority of them will. If you had to start a band, and you could only pick NFL players with no musical um, talent, and you had 12 months to train them, they're just teammates you're pulling from. Who are you pulling, and for what instrument? Oh my God. You said no musical talent? Yeah, we got to start from scratch. All right. I'm going to put Joey Bosa. And, and where does William Hayes fit into this conversation? Usher. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> showing people to their seats. That's it. You can't get a mic. Actually, where will William Hayes fit? Will he have to be on an instrument? I think Will's a drums guy. No Man, doubt. I was going to say the drums. Like, the taking drums. out a lot of rage on the drums. Yeah. I definitely put Will on the drum. And I put a mic back there, too. <laughs> In between songs, just let Will talk. See what it picks up. I'll put... This This next one's going to be cheating, but I'm putting Joey Bosa on piano because... Or on keys, because while he does not know how to play keys today, he is in the process of setting up piano lessons. So... Really? That'd be my ringer. Yeah. I don't know how far it's going to go, but... There's some breaking news. Is he pretty artistic? Bosa? Yeah, Bosa makes he apparently he used to DJ in college. Like, like when it comes to EDM and that kind of stuff, Bosa's the guy. Like, there's been music like Tame and Paula. I wouldn't have known about it if it weren't for Joey Bosa. Oh, Joey put you on to uh to to Tame. He put me on the Tame. I didn't know MGMT had Little Dark Age come out till Bosa told me. Yeah, when it comes to like the EDM, the party music, Bosa's on it. 
So basically, you played with a white kid from that went to college. Is that what you're telling me? I'm saying I played, but Joe, but Bowie, nah, but Joey actually has really good musical taste too. Oh, really? So, 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 so you're putting him on 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 keys. I put him on keys. Okay, well, we need more. We got a, we got a, we might have a drummer. We might have a, a keyboard guy. Uh, who's a bass player? I'm trying to think of somebody. Who's someone that's just been so relaxed? They have to be relaxed to play bass. Is that the person? The bass player? Huh? I mean, it- not necessarily relaxed, but you need to be. I would consider the bass to be like the offensive line of music. Like, if the bass player is really good, that can elevate the music. If they're really shitty. You gotta you get know. the ball out if you can. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can get the lead singer hurt. I, have to, I, I have think Laronidas would be a good bass player. Laronidas could be a definitely a good bass player. Yeah. He seems like a really team oriented person. He cares about what he does, and he's like super low maintenance. Like he's not gonna be the dude you know in the news for you know banging cookers, banging hookers, yeah. and smoking coke in the capital. No, that's definitely not James's stick. Yeah, so. Um, Let's put James on bass for now. Okay, James on bass. Uh, and, and as the band ages, I can definitely see him when you guys do your 20-year reunion, you know, in a uh, in like a bowling shirt back there, not saying much, just wailing away on the bass guitar. Can't yeah. you? With a hat and sunglasses on, yes. Yeah, maybe a fedora. <laughs> as if he hasn't been bald his entire adult life. Uh, are there any other instruments that I'm missing, Joe? I mean, you probably need a, another guitar player or a rhythm guitar player or whatever, and background singers. What about Danny Amendola? I don't know Danny. Oh, yeah, you didn't play with Danny. Yeah. Can he sing? I think he, I think he could be like uh, some sort of a guitar player that jumps around a lot. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, he can have that. Danny Amendola and Danny Woodhead. Those are, those are the last two additions, two firecrackers. Does Woodhead, Woodhead play music or no? I don't think so. Who's got the worst musical taste that you ever played with? What position group has the worst musical taste that you that you play with? The quarterbacks. Like <laughs> really? Yes. Like I don't think of all the times, and this is just, I mean, I know you probably have haven't been in the weight room, you know, much with the quarterbacks, but every time I've been on offense, every time the quarterback picks the, you know, whatever day, like, oh, the quarterback's gonna pick the music today. That lift just sucks because the music just fucking sucks. Like you know what? I don't like the quarterbacks when they pick. I mean, they're definitely gonna if you had to go Pandora, the first song they're putting in, position group to position group, quarterbacks are are usually gonna throw some like new poppy country in there. Um, yeah, like, yeah. How many yeah, times can I curl the old town road? Like, well, <laughs> the old town. Listen, the the DBs now. The DBs are, were very problematic for me when it came to the uh, the aux chord, so to speak. They, I'm, I'm a big hip hop fan, but what those guys are playing now in 2020 is not is not is not hip hop anymore. So, like, who who are you talking about? I'm talking about the hip hop, the artist. I don't even know, dude. I, and I don't want to do any. It's not a subliminal diss. I, you know, I, I don't have any clue. But when DBs have the uh, the augs, they don't even want to listen to like good rap music from like five years ago. They're just like on to the newest thing. Yeah. And and then they want the they want the aux chord every day. Yeah, DBs are definitely like a toxic girl from the suburbs. Sure. They're very toxic. They're the very toxic songs every day. You're offended when someone wants to hear something different, and you're not as pretty. I love that analogy. Okay, so you're a big Jimi Hendrix fan. Is Jimi Hendrix your favorite artist of all time? It's, it's, I don't know. Let me think about that. It's probably a, okay. It's a tie between Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. When you, the, wow. old, the whole overall artist thing mm-hmm. between Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. 
with Jimmy, um, I tried to do this real quick because I knew I was going to ask you, do you have like a, a top three to five songs? In no particular order. When Cries Mary, One Rainy Wish, mm-hmm. 1983, that's going to be a shocker. That's a long song, but I just, I don't know. It's one of the most creative pieces of music I've ever heard. Wow, okay. Um, what's the song he did with Band of Gypsies? Anything, I mean, who knows? That song with the Band of Gypsies. And for number five, Let's come back to that. So you've got no Voodoo Child, no no Hey Joe, and no All Along the Watchtower. Those are like the three that casual, casual fans usually would have in there. And listen, if I had to rank them and I just took those out of my top five because those are kind of legendary to me, even though, you know, uh, All Along the Watchtower and Hey Joe are not Jimmy's songs, um, I, I would, for me, Machine Gun, live at the Fillmore. Uh, I'm going to go Burn in the Midnight Lamp. Uh, okay. Castles Made of Sand. Okay, that's a good one. I mean, Wind Cries Mary, we crossed over there, and then Red House. I like Red. Okay, Red House is going to be about five, too. That's a good one. The so, thing I don't know about Jimmy is that he was actually like, I mean, he, well, I mean, I'm sure people knew, but like he wanted to be a blues player. Like, and people weren't showing up to, you know, fill up arenas to listen to blues tunes. Right. So like, you got songs like Red House and even Machine Gun, where you can just get some, you know, long blue solos in. It's pretty cool. You're really influenced, inspired by uh, Jimmy's performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, right? Like, you know, what kept you going when things got frustrating with guitar? That performance. I was really about to quit. I'm like, you know, because at the time I was learning how to play the blues. It's, it really all sounds the same after a while. You know, it's a, what, a three chord, three chords and then a turnaround. I mean, right. you know, and... I remember, you know, let me look up, let me look up this Hendrix dude everybody keeps talking about. Right. Hey Joe Live at the Monterey Pop Festival. I'm like, this, this is it. You know, this is what I want to be able to play like. And, and that's where he lit his guitar on fire. That is also where he lit his guitar on fire, yeah. Which was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. How about the kid that got that picture? One of the most iconic pictures of all time in music history. 17-year-old kid just happened to happen to stay a little bit longer um, and caught that picture. God's plan. <laughs> unbelievable, dude. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, it is unbelievable. Social isolation, social distancing. Okay, before I let you go, how are you handling that? The mental health aspect is going to start, I think, coming more into the forefront now as people have been sitting in the house for a month or two. Like, what do you do to keep yourself in that routine? And, and, if, you, and if anybody's listening is going through something, like, what would you tell them? I am not the person to ask because this is pretty much how I live. <laughs> I mean, this is how I live. I mean, besides going to a movie theater or playing a show, like when this is all over, this is how I'm going to live. Like this is how I was living before it happened. But on a serious note, um, and I mean, I've, I've told close friends this too. I mean, I think this is a great time. And I mean, you and I both know, you know, with the kids, you don't have as much free time as other people. But I would say, you know, take some time to just really, this is going to sound so cliche. But just think about your life. I mean, think about where you thought you would be when you were five, where you are now, where you want to go. Because, you know, and everything in between, what's helping you get there, what's not? What are your motivations? You know, are your motivations pure or are you just trying to, you know, validate your existence on the planet? At the end of the day, you're going to be an average of the five people you spend the most time around. You know, those kind of things are the things that are good to you, maybe not good for you and vice versa. 
So well, I, would say I like, think self-reflection's been good. You make a good yeah. point. It's like you, if anything, if you're not working on you right now, you're not working. You're, you're wasting this this uh, this fucked up opportunity. It's it's. I mean, nobody wants to be sitting in the house and watching the news with this terrible stuff going on and people dying and all the uncertainty. But if you're going to be stuck in the house, you might as well work on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I feel like if you got the time, invest some of it into yourself. Why not? I mean, some people would argue like. That's why that's one of the reasons why the outbreak has gotten so bad in the States. You know, when you're in a capitalist economy and you start to feel like, you know, the company's needs are above yours and you feeling like shit going to work every day. Now you're affecting other people. Like, I mean, people are legitimately afraid to call in sick to, you know, these days. Yeah. No, no they doubt about it. But I mean, like uh, talking about the, the what I think about some people would say working on yourself you know, on the surface, that could be selfish. If you have a family and you're sitting there, you know, working on you, it's one of those things, though, to me, you, you know, when you get, get on an airplane, they, they, they give you the brochure, it says uh, secure your flotation device or your breathing mask first. You know, I, you can't help your family and you can't be the best Joe Barksdale. I can't be the best Chris Long and vice versa down the line if you're not working on you first. And so I think that, like, you know, devoting a little bit of time to yourself isn't the worst thing in the world. I think it's necessary. I feel like, um, I mean, actually, I know it's necessary, you know, because like you said, like, if you're not working on yourself, now you're at home miserable all the time, you're making everybody else at home, like, you're not helping out then either. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in a live, healthy you, you know, around, you know, five, 10, 20 years down the road, no matter what condition is going to be better than a depressed dead you? Yeah. You know, we've been mourning for the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. So, I mean, and these are that's the reality of the situation. You know, it's the same thing with eating healthy. You keep eating like crap every day, you're going to die. You keep, you know, letting the crap go around your brain every day. Work. I need to work on that last thing, I guess, because all I've been doing is eating. Uh, and I'm not bodybuilding, so. It's, last question before I let you go. Where is Joe Barksdale? the musician in 10 years. And if you could play at any venue, uh, where would you play? Oh, you know, this is super easy. Uh, selling out the Wembley Stadium in London, playing a live version of my first ever album that I took down. There we go, dude. All right, I'll be there. Wembley, 20... Wembley in London, 10 years. 2030? 2030. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Like, I, I remember... Clarinitis on, on uh, bass guitar and a bowling shirt and a fedora and sunglasses. James, you did great. <laughs> bass sounds awesome. Get off the stage. <laughs> well, hey, Joe, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for being so open about everything. And uh, and I'll be I'll be keeping my ear to the streets to hear oh, all Joe Barksdale's new music. Again, sincerely coming out fall 2020, September. He checked with his manager. You heard yep. it here. September 2020. Uh, yep. Check out the single out right now, Black Magic, which is awesome. Joe, best of the family. Uh, keep kicking ass, dude. Thanks, man. Same to you. So that was Joe Barksdale, uh, obviously somebody who's not afraid to talk openly and outwardly about his issues uh, that he's dealt with and and his struggles. And I think that's a tremendous example to other football players who, who might be going through the same thing. Listen, you don't have to talk about anything, but if you do, as Joe mentioned, uh, you're giving some other – uh, people listening, inspiration to maybe seek help or uh, talk more openly about it. And that can uh, that can do wonders. So I appreciate Joe, obviously a good football player, doing a lot of other stuff off the field, even better 
Uh, one thing being the music. One more time, the album is Sincerely. It'll be out uh, in September this fall per his manager. Shout out to Brianna. Um, that's about all I, I know about it, but uh, his music sounds pretty good to me, and uh, I think he's on he's on the right track. I'm excited for him. Uh, let's get to the uh, mailbag, shall we? Mailbag after dark, if you know what I mean. Okay, NFL fashion advice. That's the handle, uh, and it's fitting because their uh, AVI is uh, a picture of the creamsicle Buccaneers um, uniform, which the Bucks should have uh, reanimated, if you will, in the recent days. But they opted for what was an improvement, uh, but maybe not a home run. It was more just like getting back to what they were uh, with a little bit of an updated flair. Anyways, NFL Fashion Advice asks, third and six, um, passing down, you have to make a D-line of just players that you've played with. (sighs) I mean, I was the sole left end in rushing situations on pretty much every team I was on other than the Patriots. They rushed me on the right. Um, I would put myself at left end. Uh, I would put Robert Quinn at right end. Uh, Robert Quinn had 19 sacks his best year in St. Louis. Uh, he was an absolute monster, and nobody saw. And he continues to get paid. He'll end up with north of 100. Aaron Donald, everybody knows him. Uh, unfortunately, me, Rob, and Aaron never had our, our highest successes at the same time. Um, you know, by the time AD was on our D line, uh, I was I was hurt you know, IR, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, Rob's year where he had 19, imagine what what he would have had if AD was on that line as well. So, uh, and then Fletcher Cox, of course. So that D-line would be me, AD, Fletch, and Rob Quinn. And I would let AD and Rob Quinn rush together. Me and Fletch rush really well together. Miss you, Fletch. Somebody asked me nearly an impossible question on the surface, who wins in kind of a Mortal Kombat situation. Uh, a little setup like that, some weaponry limitations, but it's Arnold from Predator and uh, Rambo from First Blood, two of my favorite movies, Uh, and similar in some ways, um, both of these guys playing kind of last man standing, King of the Mountain, trying to stave off uh, like a villain. The only difference here, as much as I think that Rambo was hungry, uh, his character was great, he set up a lot of cool traps for uh, for the sheriff and his posse. Arnold was doing the same fucking thing to an alien who was presumably eight and a half feet tall, uh, had like an eight pack, shot laser beams, and could see you in the dark. And if you were bleeding, um, which wouldn't work so well in first blood, he could find you. Um, so it's a little bit different than staving off uh, Dennehy up on the mountain. Uh, and on top of that, Arnold was in the jungle. And now Arnold had a crew. He had Jesse the Body Ventura, who got a um, a basketball size hole in his chest. Uh, that was over quick. Now, another thing was Predator. He waged like mental warfare. You didn't know how how to take him on. And Arnold ultimately figured him out that you had to draw him in and set the traps. But like his buddy, Billy, if you remember, Billy was out on that log bridge cutting his fucking face open with, uh, with his Bowie knife, 
that's how crazy the predator made people. And that tactic was definitely not working for Billy. Billy, you didn't even, you didn't even get to see how Billy got it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to go Arnold, totally different opponent, same kind of setup. Uh, plus he was doing it in the jungle. So I got Arnold there. Uh, no disrespect to, uh, to Stallone texting with big letters. Another good question from texting with big, big letters. He says, I'm in this situation where I've got uh, a month to build a house. I got to pick four teammates, one from each team, including my college team and one coach. And we got a month to do it. Okay. So the coach, I'm going to go Jeff Fisher. Uh, Jeff Fisher makes everything feel relaxed and okay. Uh, there'll be some tense moments. We're trying to get this house up in a month. I know from experience that can't happen. Uh, but Fish is going to make us feel good about it. Uh, Eugene Monroe at UVA. He is uh, you know, an emerging presence in the cannabis world. He will bring the good weed. Um, he's also a chill dude. He's down with manual labor. He was a hard worker as a player. Robert Quinn, maybe, uh, from St. Louis. We could wrap the night with, with a nice bottle of Crown Apple um, and, uh, and pass it around. Rob would bring the Crown Apple. Uh, also, Rob has a lot of money. He keeps getting paid, and we're going to need supplies. Uh, I'm trying to build a nice house, and, uh, and it's not going to be specky. Ninkovich, okay, um, is going to be my guy in New England. Ninko can get under the hood of a muscle car and, like, fix it and shit like that. So anybody who can do that, I figure they can probably hammer some nails. You know, I worked masonry. That was my one manual labor job in high school. Krutoff masonry uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was all, you know, grunt work, no skill. Ninko's a guy who probably knows how to use like a level, various tools, things like that, things I can't do so well. Um, and then finally, I guess we have the Eagles left. That's going to be Donnie Jones. Now, bear with me. Donnie Jones is not, a, not only cynical, dry, the type of sense of humor that really gets me through the day. Donnie's also um, like a borderline boomer. And when you're a borderline boomer, I just assume that you, you, you just missed the cutoff uh, for, for being a young enough person that you didn't get to develop these manual labor skills. Um, all this stuff that my parents know how to do, their generation, Donnie probably knows it, but he's not old enough uh, to be a liability on the job site. So Donnie is going to be my guy from the Eagles. Uh, so yeah, that's who I got. I got Jeff Fisher, Eugene Monroe, Robert Quinn. Uh, Rob Ninkovich and uh, Donnie Jones. We're going to build a house. Okay. Uh, how much you mensch asks hotel with best mini bar on the road for an NFL game. I never had a mini bar. I never even looked at a mini bar when I was on the road. I did not, I didn't drink even on a two day trip. Um, I, I wasn't a have a beer, have a glass of wine guy, even at dinner. Like I did not drink uh, around games. So the second question he asked is percentage of players who tip housekeepers. I think that should be higher. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess it's below 10%, below 20%, which is actually bad when you think about it because I think housekeepers deserve to be tipped as much as anybody. It's, it's kind of gross what they have to do 
and uh, you have no idea who you're cleaning up after. A lot of people are kind of disrespectful. And there was a time in my life, you know, I'm not trying to be holier than now, I was pretty messy and I didn't tip. Now um, I clean the room before I leave, at least surface clean it. And if it's messy, uh, I do tip. So I'm probably a 50% tipper on housekeeping. Just being honest, I don't know what the judgment's going to be here. Um, but that's kind of where, I, where I'm at there. K Hoffman asks, what would I tell the 10 years ago version of myself? And this is one of those like, yeah, advice to your younger self thing. Like the Players Tribune uh, letters to yourself. Very dramatic. I wouldn't probably tell them anything. You know, there's there's no substitute for experience. So, like, that's the whole reason when older people tell you shit your whole life. You don't listen until you have to or until you've learned, you know, on your own timeline and shot clock. So I really, not to be, like, weird or dodge the question, but other than maybe, hey, um, don't try to try to stretch uh, leverage on Phil Lodehalt in the opener in 2014 because somebody's going to roll up into your ankle and effectively end your career in St. Louis. Um, or, hey, don't take the inside move um, in Green Bay because Robert Quinn's going to fall into your leg and you're going to break your tibia. Like shit like that, maybe I'd tell myself something like that, but I can't tell myself anything deep or like uh, trajectory altering. Um, there's no substitute for experience. And plus, if I tell the, the dude from 10 years ago who's like a second year in the league dealing with immense pressure, um, you know, trying to make it in the NFL – as a high draft pick, a uh, high draft pick, that sort of thing, playing a really violent game. If I tell him what I know now, he might just fucking walk. Cause honestly, what I know now is that it wasn't that important. When you're sitting um, on this side of it and you're out of the game, like yeah, you miss the game sometimes. There's gonna be a point when you retire that you're gonna have to grapple with your ego and like whatever little legacy you have as a player. But what you realize pretty quick from watching a season of football is that it doesn't fucking matter. Uh, the show goes on. And you should get out while, while, while you're healthy and while you're safe and once you get paid. Um, but it's easier said than done, and football does have an addictive um, aspect to it. So um, I don't know what my advice to a younger me would have been. Probably not much. You got to go learn it on your own. Okay, uh, y'all have a good one. We'll be back uh, tomorrow morning with a really, really good interview. I'm really excited about this one. I'm just going to tease it for now. I'll tell you about it later in the day. Y'all take care.